good to see everybody tonight. I always start out by talking quiet, just in case. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, we're a little bit thin this evening as, as we've got some that still haven't made it back. Uh, but we're glad that you're here, and I appreciate the prayer on my behalf from Brother Monty Paul, especially his prayer that I would have a strong mind because I'm going to need that tonight. Uh, we're going to go through some pretty complicated things, and I'm going to try to make them simple. And that's always a challenge to do. Uh, but this chapter is only 21 verses, and we're going to spend some time building up to it as we have in the past. So uh, be ready for Romans chapter 10, but we're not going to get there for just a little bit because... And the reason we've been doing this, I want to make something clear. The reason why we've been going back every time is, is Romans is different. One of the reasons why it's one of the most complicated books, if you want to call it complicated, why it's one of the most uh, scholarly books or scholastic or whatever you want to call that, is because Romans is long. You say, well, it's only 16 chapters. Well, in the scope of the New Testament writings, that's pretty long. Uh, only 1 Corinthians is as long but 1 Corinthians is different because there's a change in subjects. Uh, even though there's a common theme, there's subject changes a lot of times between chapters. Whereas Romans, from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 11, it's one theme and there's not any changes. And so you kind of have to keep this flow of thought because Romans is a very fluid book. And so with that in mind, when you get to chapter 10, you can't just read chapter 10 and understand chapter 10. Because there's not a context just within chapter 10, you have to pick up the context. And so that's why we're taking the time to go back a little bit. So tonight our, our lesson is going to be called, called by God to call on him. Because that's really the subject of Romans chapter 10. But there's also a greater perspective that we need to understand about what the foundation of Paul's teaching in Romans is. So we're going to go to chapter 1 just for a moment. We're only going to read these verses but I want to remind you of something. Everything from chapter 1 to chapter 11 and some thoughts even after that are back related to this one statement. This is the foundational statement of the book of Romans. That salvation is the result of Jesus Christ coming to the earth and dying for man's sins on the cross. That's the foundation of the book of Romans. That in the gospel is God's saving power. And in the gospel, he says in verse 17, for therein, that's in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. And so as Paul goes through these uh, different chapters, and they weren't chapters when he wrote it, it was just one long letter, but we look at them as chapters. As he goes through these teachings, that's what he's got in mind is Focusing on this fact, but there's one more statement in this that I really want us to think about, and that's this. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. That's important to understand. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Because a lot of the statements we're going to look at are related to that. That salvation is not just for the Jew. It's also for the Greek, or the Gentile. <clears throat> okay. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to take a mental detour, but I'm going to do that for a reason because we've danced all over this. We've touched on it. Brother Monty touched on it in his Romans 6 lesson, but I want to sit on it for just a moment and think about it. We use the word Calvinism and we've used it several times throughout this study. And, and I want to be clear about what Calvinism is. Firstly, we're, we're going to talk about Calvinism because Calvinism is the rising doctrine in American Christianity today. It is dominating in the teaching. 
And you probably heard the term Calvinism or even heard the name John Calvin, but may have not understood what that is. Well, there were two men during this time, John Calvin, another man named Jacob Arminius. And there's kind of this, uh, I don't know, legendary status that these two men have, and people talk about the debates they had. And, and I don't know if you can see those dates on there, but John Calvin died in 1564, and Jacob Arminius was born in 1559. Here's what that tells us. These two men never debated. Okay, Jacob Arminius was five years old, four or five years old when John Calvin died. They didn't know each other. They didn't debate. It was their followers that got into this big skirmish that led to some of Calvin's teachings being very popularized. And you probably remember the term tulip. Uh, well, where did tulip come from? Well, it didn't come from John Calvin. His followers were actually the ones that came up with the acronym TULIP, and they did that in response to some of Jacob Arminius's followers. Jacob Arminius's followers, after he had passed away, came up with what they called the five articles of remonstrance. And that word remonstrance is not a word we use, but it just means protest. They came up with five things that they thought would directly contradict Calvin's teaching, and they put them out there. So Calvin's followers, being in Holland, came up with Tulip, which was a direct protest to the protests. And so we're going to go through Tulip for just a moment. Kind of interesting. They thought it was neat because Holland, which is the Netherlands, is full of tulips. This is a field from Holland. It's full of tulips. So they thought that was really neat and it would catch on. Apparently it did. It worked. It caught on. But let's talk about Calvin's teachings. And this is going to be relative to our study tonight. <clears throat> We've gone through Romans uh, 5 through 10, and we've had all these words uh, about predestined and chosen and elected. And so uh, that's where Calvin's doctrines came from. But to be fair, Calvin didn't come up with these things. He was just regurgitating Augustine of Hippus' teachings from the 4th and 5th century. So Calvin's teachings were a 1,000 years old when he just rebranded them and other people popularized them by putting them in this nice, neat, little, tidy acronym. So total hereditary depravity is the T in TULIP. What is total hereditary depravity? Someone says, well, that's original sin. Well, let's be careful because they're not the same. This came from the doctrine of original sin, but original sin is just hereditary depravity. That is that you inherited Adam's sin. The word total changes everything because here's what Calvin taught. You're not only depraved because you inherited Adam's sin, you are totally depraved. That means this, you are incapable of seeking God. In fact, until God regenerates your soul via the work of the Holy Spirit, you can't even do things that are good. And if you do anything that looks good, it's just for your own ego and pleasure. It's not actually good. You have no good intentions. You are totally depraved. Totally Okay, so something connected to that is unconditional election. Because you're totally depraved, if God elects you, well, obviously, it has nothing to do with you. You're depraved. Now, these don't necessarily go in order, uh, because in the, the five articles of remonstrance, this one would have been number one, this one would have been number three, this would have been number two, and th or this one would have been number two, and this one would have been later. So, all these go together. So limited atonement. Well, obviously, if there's an elect that God elects, and only it's, it's only a few, God only elects who he wants to, then obviously Jesus didn't die for everybody. 
That's the idea of limited atonement. And we know that contradicts scripture because the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The, the Bible even says that Christ died for the world. He gave himself for the world. But to make this doctrine work, they had to say if there's an elect, then only Jesus' death will apply to the elect. It was only for the elect. Irresistible grace is this. Once God elects you, once he chooses you, he's going to send the spirit. And once he does, you can't do anything about it. You can do nothing about it. In fact, this one hinges upon that fact you can do nothing about it because at that point, God takes control. Perseverance of the saints is often associated with what we would call once saved, always saved. And once saved, always saved just means once I'm saved, I can't be lost because God's grace is too great. That's not what this person is saying, okay? Perseverance of the saints means this. Because God sends the Spirit and he takes control, you are now incapable of living wrong. If you do live wrong, we're just going to know you weren't really elect to begin with. That's his doctrine, okay? So that's a really quick overview of Calvin's doctrine. But the reason I want to go through this is because this doctrine has some implications and it also has some conclusions that we're going to look at before we jump into our study. Number one, if God... If God, through his sovereignty, allows man no freedom of choice, God only calls those who are chosen, already chosen. In other words, he chooses you, then he calls you. So when Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen, it, he should have said, many are chosen, and they're the only ones that are called. No, many are called, and few are chosen. And we're going to talk about how that process works. Calvin looked at it as God decides people's fates before they're ever born. And he based that on, I hated Esau and I love Jacob, which we're going to touch on here in a moment. So God only calls those who are already chosen. And this is something that we have to understand. This is why they believe that election is unconditional. They're not going to argue that faith is necessary, but here's where they're going to differ. They say faith is a gift. It's a gift according to the election. In other words, no one will ever have faith unless God first chooses them. And once he chooses them, he'll send the Spirit to, again, regenerate their soul. Now they're not totally depraved. Now they can seek God. Now they can know God. Now they can understand. So when you read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We look at that and say, Salvation is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. They say, No. Faith is the gift of God, not salvation. I know this is probably different, but you're going you're gonna to start hearing this more and more as this doctrine gets more popular. So here's the other one. Free will is an illusion. Free will is an illusion. Because if man is incapable of seeking God, that means he doesn't have the will to serve God. The only way man will ever serve God is if God takes over his will and wills for him to do good. And so that also means obedience is an illusion. What do you obey? You're incapable of obeying. You're depraved. I hope you're starting to see some of the implications of this. The only way that someone lives by faith is because the Spirit won't allow us to disobey. That's irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. So what that means is God does not love the world. He doesn't love the world. In fact, there's a great majority of the world that he's elected to damnation that he hates their guts. That's what Calvinism says. 
You know why you're not saved? Because God hates you. That's what they teach. This is a very poisonous doctrine that many people are believing today. And it's a pit of hopelessness for many people. And it really, this is the worst conclusion, is that God is really unjust. Because he's going to condemn a lot of people because he didn't choose to elect them. And it's no fault of theirs. They're only sinful because he didn't intervene. Uh, this is a mess. I'll tell you, it's a mess. It looks nice and tidy because it's tulip. It's, it's five things. It's five points. It's not tidy. And I want you to know the book of Romans does not teach this regardless of what many in the world believe today. It's not about God through his complete and total sovereignty choosing some to salvation and some to damnation. Romans chapter 9 and verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Why does he go through and name all those things? I'll tell you why. Because the Jews were God's chosen people. That's why. They were God's chosen people. Now, why does that matter? Because now, Paul is making a statement that many of them are no longer God's chosen people. And the question's why? Is it because God is unjust? Is it because he didn't fulfill the promises that he made to them? That's the question. And for that matter, why did God cast away a lot of Israel, but now he's brought these sinners, these heathens, these pagans, these Gentiles, and chosen them? That's not fair. Okay, let's look at this. He says also, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Now look at verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. What in the world is he talking about? Okay, he doesn't get into this yet, but he's going to get into it. Brother Justin will talk about it in Romans 11, that there's an Israel a spiritual Israel that is the reality of God's chosen people. And then there's physical Israel. And everybody that is a physical Israel isn't of spiritual Israel. In other words, they thought they were the chosen because they were a chosen physical nation. But they're no longer the chosen. The chosen is now spiritual Israel, not physical Israel. Not everybody that was a Jew got to enter into the kingdom of God. Not everybody was able to be justified. And the question again is why? Why? Well, here's the Calvinist answer to that. Because God hated them. He chose, not to, he chose not to elect them. He chose not to regenerate them. He chose not to give them faith. Is that really what Paul's talking about here? You say, Ian, why did we just jump into the prodigal son? The, 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 prod, the parable of the prodigal son? Because it illustrates an attitude that Paul's addressing. Here's the attitude, okay? Let's read this real quick. He answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. 
Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. Hear the sanctimonious attitude of this older brother as he looks out at his younger brother and says, Why are you being gracious to this guy? I have followed you. I have kept your law. This guy has not. He has wasted it. It's not fair. It's not fair. And that's the exact attitude between Jew and Gentile. And Paul is addressing some of this in Romans. Look at Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we, that's the Jew, better than they, that's the Gentile? No, in no wise. For we have both proved, we have before proved rather, both Jews and Gentiles that they're all under sin. Paul said, cut out this sanctimonious attitude. We've already discovered through an examination we are all under sin. We're not better than them. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Romans 9, 24. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentile, the Greek. Over and over throughout this letter, we see this common theme of him comparing Jew and Gentile and then saying, look, there's no difference. God called the Gentile and he called the Jew. And let's talk about why God called the Jew and why the Jews thought God called the Jews. You know why they thought that he called them? Because of their works. Because of their righteousness. They had the attitude of the older brother. They were entitled to it. But look what Paul is actually teaching in Romans 9. Now let's look at Jacob and Esau for a moment. And this is a tough teaching, especially when you don't consider what it's based on. He says, not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even our father Isaac. Now listen to this parenthetical statement. For the children being not yet born, that's Jacob and Esau, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Here's what he's saying. These two boys were not born yet, and God elected them. To what? To damnation and salvation? No. No. What did he elect them to? We'll get to that in a moment. But what does he say the election was of? Not of works. Well, it couldn't have been. They never had, they hadn't done a thing. They're not even born yet. How could he look at their works and say, I hated you and I loved you? See his point? It has nothing to do with works. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. That is, Esau shall serve Jacob, which was not a thing. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. You say, well, that sounds a lot like Calvinism. Is this about two brothers? Is that what it's about? Where did this phrase come from, the elder shall serve the younger? Look at, the, look at what God told Rebekah. The Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. This isn't about Jacob and Esau. It's about Israel and Edom and why God chose Israel and he rejected Edom. Why? Because it was according to his purpose to bring about Christ into the world and to show his mercy. It's not about the brothers. 
It's not about salvation and damnation. Paul is making a point about election to them, and he says the election had nothing to do with works. It had to do with God's purpose. You didn't deserve the election. God didn't elect you because of your goodness. God chose the nation of Israel for his purpose, and he picked Jacob Israel, that's his name, Jacob is Israel, before Israel was ever born. What's his point? That's the question. What's his point? Paul's telling Israel that they were called and elected as a nation to be God's people through his determined plan. They weren't called because they'd done right or wrong. They were called according to his purpose and to his planning. That's election. That's the idea of election. That's the idea of choosing So likewise, the Gentiles have not been sought or called by God because they're better than the Jews. They're looking at it the wrong way. There's a reason why God called the Gentiles. Why did he call them? It wasn't because they were good. And Paul even clarifies that when he says this. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. This is going to flow into chapter 10, so stay with me. What's he saying? There were Jews elected. There were Gentiles elected. But why is it that a great majority of Israel was not elected? Why? Well, did it have to do with what they were doing before God called them? No. He said God called and elected A bunch of people who did not seek him, who didn't know him. They didn't have the covenants. They weren't involved in the service of God. They didn't have the promises, but God elected them anyway. Why? Because God chose to through his purpose. Why? Because he loved them, not because he hated anybody. God did not reject Israel because he hated them. It says Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, the works of the law for they stumbled at that stumbling stone where are we at now who's the stumbling stone it's Jesus look at what he says in verse 33 behold I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame so let's recap real quick before we jump into Romans 10 and let's summarize what we've just talked about as we're moving into this next chapter What Paul has established is this, God elects according to his purpose, not according to man's righteousness. You with me? God elects according to his righteousness and his planning, not according to man's righteousness. And he elects through faith. The Jews that were part of the people that weren't elected, there's a reason they weren't elected. They stumbled when Jesus came. Why? Because he was an offense to their righteousness. Their righteousness. So Romans chapter 10 verse 1. Sorry, we're skipping some things. We don't have time. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Why did he say that? Because they weren't. Because they weren't saved. He's talking about physical Israel now. I bear them record. I bear them witness. I'm testifying that they have a zeal of God or a zeal for God, but he says it's not according to knowledge. Well, 
of course they don't have knowledge. God didn't elect them, so he didn't regenerate. No, 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 no. You're missing the point. Look at verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Okay, let's make this real simple. These guys thought if they kept doing works of the law, eventually they would reach a state of right. They're trying to establish their own righteousness. And what does he say? They're ignorant. He's not being condescending. He's not being insulting. He's just saying they don't understand. What do they not understand? It's not about you and your righteousness. It's about God and his righteousness because here's the reality. No person is righteous. Even today, right now this minute, this room is filled with people who in reality are not righteous. The only reason that we can sit here righteous is because God imputed righteousness to us. It's not because we're righteous. It's because he through Jesus has counted us as righteous. These people didn't understand that. And so their trust is not in God. It's not in Jesus Christ. It's not in his sacrifice. It's not in God's grace. Where's it at? It's right here. They're trusting in themselves. They're missing the point. They rejected the stone because they're not worried about the stone. They don't even understand why Jesus died. They're more worried about what they're doing than what God did. And he says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Wait, you mean the law could make righteous? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying once a person does know, once they do know, then they're not going to seek righteousness through the law. That's the end of the law for righteousness. Because once you believe in Christ and you understand what Christ did, there is no such thing as seeking for righteousness through the law. This is a difficult passage. We're going to read it. We're going to go to what he's quoting. Then we're going to come back to it. And this, again, this is a very challenging passage, but it's also a very simple concept once we understand the concept. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. What he's saying is the righteousness that is attached to the law is you keep the law. You keep it all. You keep it perfectly. That's how you're righteous. You do the law. Well, we, we already know nobody did that. But he says, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. And here's the challenging part. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring up Christ from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. Okay, so that's probably really confusing. But what's he quoting? He's quoting Deuteronomy and he's quoting Moses. But it's not actually an exact quote. He's just borrowing the quote and actually changing some words for his purposes. But let's go look at the quote because it'll help us understand what Paul's saying by understanding why Moses said it in the first place. For this is the commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you nor is it far off. So what is the premise here? Moses says, listen, what I'm commanding you today, it's not hard to understand. It's not mysterious. And he said, number two, it's not far off. It's not far off. 
It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? In other words, he's saying this. Look, you really don't have an excuse to not do what I'm telling you to do. Because number one, it's not hard to understand. And number two, it's right there within your reach. You're not going to have to find somebody who goes all the way to heaven to grab this commandment, interpret it, and bring it back to you. It's right here. You don't have to go over the sea. And, and we might not understand the implication of that. But the sea was a very hard thing to navigate. It was a very difficult uh, navigation to go across the sea and get something and bring it back. And that's what he's saying. He said, the word is right here. It's near you. It's where? It's in your mouth. And it's in your heart. Why? That you may do it. That's, that's the point. The word's not way off. It's right there and you can understand it. And you can do it. So what's Paul's point? Same thing. Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is in the, the deepest pit, to bring up Christ from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. So do I need to go and actually witness Jesus at the right hand of God to believe? Do I need to go down to the abyss to believe? What, what do I need to believe? Does someone need to go to the, the furthest ends so that I believe? No, the word's right here. And we can believe it and we can trust it and know it. That's his point. It's right here. It's right here in your mouth. It's right here in your heart. In other words, you don't have an excuse. Well, who's he talking to? He's talking about Israel. That's who he's talking about, Israel. They knew this. They knew, this. They knew these passages. They knew what it was about. You've got no excuse for stumbling at the rock. You've not got no excuse for not obeying Jesus. The word has come to you. It's near you. And if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, the word that's in your mouth, that you received, if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You didn't have to witness it. You didn't have to see it. God saves by faith. And Paul said, we've delivered this unto you. You've had it. With the heart one believes. Believes what? In Jesus and that Jesus rose from the dead, and that Jesus was the Son of God, and that Jesus died on the cross, all that. If one believes in his heart, he believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Does that sound like works? No. That's pretty easy, right? Pretty easy. Now, I hadn't seen this before. But he uses this word twice, whoever. And I, I guess I didn't notice the significance of it. But, but again, the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be ashamed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why does he say whoever? Well, look at verse 12 again. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. That's why he says whoever. He means whoever, anybody. Anybody that believes in Jesus will not be shamed. 
Anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Doesn't matter whether they can trace their lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if they lived under the law or they experienced the law or were children of the covenant of the promises. Doesn't matter if they lived and did the law or they were serving the law or trying to work the law. Doesn't matter. What matters is if someone believes in Jesus and calls on his name. So, what does that mean? What does that mean? How was somebody elected? Is it because God, before the foundation of the world, looked down the stream of time and he said, I'm going to save this person, save this person, this person's going to be lost, this person. Is that what happened? Is that how people are elected? How are people elected? You know, Brother Nathan talked about this in his Daniel 9 lesson in Isaiah chapter 46, that God said, who is a God like me who can declare the end before the beginning? God foreknows. He foreknows and he sees. He sees all. Does that mean he predestined all? No. And sometimes when God predestines something, it doesn't mean that he pulled all the strings. I'll give you for instance, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter said to the Jews that day, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You know what determinate counsel and foreknowledge means? Predestined. That's what it means. Him, Jesus, being delivered by God's predestination and according to his foreknowledge, he said, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. There's two parts to that. God determined that Jesus would die on the cross before the foundation of the world. But did God make the people that day crucify Jesus? Or did they choose to crucify Jesus? Peter put the guilt on them. You took and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. This is the other implication of Calvinism. God is the author of sin. Think about it. If men sin and they have no free will, who's pulling the strings? That's a, that's a tough question, isn't it? If you think God is doing everything, he didn't. They chose. They chose that day. And we're kind of scared of that word predestinated or elected, but predestinated doesn't infer there's no free will. Jacob and Esau... Why was it that Jacob ended up getting the blessing? Because Esau rejected it. He sold it. He sold it to his brother for a pot of stew. And it says he despised his birthright. Yes, God foreknew. He saw out in front of him and he knew what was happening. But what was the election about? Christ. is about bringing Christ into the world. And how are we elected today? Did you know that God chose you? You said, whoa, now. Yes, he did. And the scripture says over and over that he predestinated us. He predestinated us. The question is not, did God predestinate us? The question is, how did God predestine us? How did God elect us? How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? 
And how shall they believe in him and who they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. There are two things in this passage that I want you to notice that he uses interchangeably, and that is call on the name of the Lord and obeyed the, excuse me, obeyed the gospel. He's using those two things interchangeably. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And then what's he conclude with? They've not all obeyed. Why? Because they didn't believe. They didn't believe. What is call on the name of the Lord? What is that? Someone said, well, obviously that's prayer. I mean, just think about it. Call on the name of the Lord. Well, it doesn't say call to the Lord. It says call on the name. Of the, well, what's the name of the Lord? Brother John talked about this Sunday morning. What's the name of the Lord? Jesus Christ. That's the name of the Lord. How is this same phrase, call on the name of the Lord, used in the scriptures? Romans 6 and 7, we already know what obeyed the gospel is. He's already covered that four chapters earlier. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from what? The heart that you believe in. Remember that? We just talked about that. You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. What was the form of doctrine that they were delivered? It was the gospel of Jesus how do you obey the gospel of Jesus? Can you die, be buried, and resurrected? Well, not literally, but earlier in the chapter, he's already covered that. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into what? His death. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This is obedience to the gospel. You say, Ian, are you saying this is calling the name of the Lord? That's exactly what I'm saying. Look at Acts 22, verse 16. Now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What did he tell him to do? Be baptized. And what did he call it? Calling on the name of the Lord. You say, how in the world is baptism calling on the name of the Lord? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Now listen very closely, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. How? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Appeal to God. What does that mean? What happens in baptism? What's going on? We are calling on Jesus Christ to save us to cleanse us, to renew us, to justify us, to redeem us. We are submitting ourselves to the righteousness of God that Israel would not submit themselves to. It's not a work of righteousness which we do. It's a complete and total dependence on God. It's a call out to God, an appeal to God. For what? The forgiveness of sins. So Paul makes this easy to understand logical argument. How are people going to be saved unless they call on the name of the Lord? And how are they going to call if they don't believe? 
Well, how are they going to believe if they don't hear the gospel? And how are they going to hear the gospel unless someone goes and preaches the gospel? Now, to us, we look at this and we go, well, yeah, that's simple. I mean, but think about it. To someone who says, no, you're totally depraved, first the Holy Spirit has to regenerate you even before you hear the gospel so you can hear the gospel. What, what does God say? What does God's word say? You know, this is not a foreign concept. Mark 16, 15 through 16, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. You know what this is? This is Romans 10. Someone's got to go preach, guys. You go out and preach. Why? So people can hear and they can believe and they can do what? Call on the name of the Lord and then they'll be saved. Jesus already taught this. This is just very logical. But why say it in Romans chapter 10? Because this is how God calls us. This is how God calls. It's through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you've got the choice to either stumble at it, reject it, or receive it and believe it. That's a choice of yours. God did not create man so he could puppeteer them for his own pleasure and enjoyment. God loves us. And by sending his son to this earth, God has given the opportunity to every person to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's their choice to either believe it or not believe it. And so what's his conclusion to this? So then faith comes by hearing. What? Wait a minute. Let's go back for a moment. Faith comes by what? Hearing. Not miraculous regeneration via the Holy Spirit. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? The gospel. That's his point. People believe in the gospel because they hear it. And then he says this, but I say, have they not heard? We've come full circle. Who's they? Israel. He said, look, this is how God elects. This is how he calls. And he's already called them. Have they not heard? He said, indeed, they've heard. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. You know what Paul's doing? He's defending God. That's what he's doing you're saying God's unjust. And he said, first off, be careful. You're the pot, not the potter. And the pot doesn't tell the potter he's unjust. And number two, if God elects according to his purpose, that's God's business, not yours. But you need to understand, that's really not what's going on here because this is how God elects. And God called, but they didn't answer. They didn't call upon him. See, God calls us so we can call on him. They didn't call back. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Paul said to the Jew first and also to the Greek, every single Jew that rejected Jesus, when they turned to the Gentiles and preached, you know what God was doing? calling them again, provoking them to jealousy by turning to the Gentiles. Why? Because God didn't say, well, sorry, half of Israel, three-fourths of Israel, you're just lost. No, he called them. 
They didn't listen. So you know what he did? He called them again. But Isaiah is very bold and says this about the Gentiles. I was found by those who did not seek me. He didn't say couldn't seek me. He just said they weren't seeking me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. You know, when, when, when the apostles went out and they went preaching in these Gentile towns, these Gentiles didn't anticipate that. They weren't looking for the Messiah. They weren't looking for the gospel. They were living in their sin. And these guys showed up and they said, look, you need to repent because God loves you and he sent his son to die for you and you can live with him in eternity. And in doing that, God was trying to provoke Israel to jealousy. But it wasn't just about Israel. It was also about the Gentiles because he loved them. But to Israel, he says all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What's he talking about? I have extended my mercy towards you over and over and over. You know what you did? You rejected me. Friends, God is calling today. And he calls today the same way he called them. And when God calls and we answer, he saves us through Jesus Christ, his son. And when he saves us through Jesus Christ, his son, we become his child. We become the elect. And see, that's what God predestined from the beginning. He predestined us to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. And we do that by answering the call. God foreordained before the foundation of the world that Jesus would suffer and die. See, God did predestine salvation. He predestinated Jesus to die on the cross. And tonight you can have the benefit. It's open for you. And if you're here tonight and you're not saved, God is calling. If you're here tonight and you are the elect, I will tell you something. God's not going to stop you if you try to walk off the path. He's not going to stop you. But I'll tell you what he will do. If you come back, he'll receive you with open arms. That's what he'll do. Because he loves you. He hasn't cast off anybody. Friends, tonight we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. Come have a seat and we will help you as we stand and we sing.